We are in John's Gospel. This morning we're going to conclude the sermon series that we've been going through. We're in John chapter 18, page 1071. And if you want to spend a moment with your Bible this morning, that blue pew Bible, I got an email this morning that our new Bibles will be delivered tomorrow. So come next Sunday, you'll be holding a different one. All right? We're thankful for all the giving for that, and I'm excited about getting a new translation and just the the freshness that comes from that. We're going to begin reading in the first verse of John chapter 18. You follow along as I read out loud. John records, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he, his disciples, went into it. Now Judas who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again Jesus asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost not one of those you gave me. When Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Lord has given me, the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed this journey that we've gone through in John's Gospel, just trying to get to know Jesus better. I'm excited about the sermon series that's coming up from the life of David, but I've got to tell you, I've really enjoyed this one. We've seen in the first part of the, the Gospel the things that Jesus could do. Turn water into wine, heal the sick, raise the dead. But now as we get to the latter part of the gospel, we see not what Jesus can do, but more who Jesus is. Jesus is revealing to us his heart. What does he care about? What are his priorities? John has been telling us numerous times through his gospel before this that it wasn't his hour. It wasn't his time. And then when we got to chapter 13, he said, oh, the hour's here. It's time. The hour that we are at right now with the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus, this is it, folks. This is why Jesus came. Anybody that tells you that Jesus came to just be a good moral teacher doesn't understand who Jesus was. Was he a moral teacher? Yes. Was he a good moral teacher? You bet. 
But Jesus did not come simply to teach us. He came, as John the Baptist said at the beginning of this gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is time now for that Lamb to be crucified. John has been leading us to this point, and every spotlight is now on Jesus and what he's going to do. Let's walk through the story. Again, as we've seen so many times, there's just not a lot of movement back and forth in these stories. It's just matter of fact, a couple of scenes, a couple of parts. What do we see? We see after the Lord's Supper, after that last supper that Jesus has with his disciples, he spends some time in prayer. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Given what Jesus is about to go through, that he spends significant time in prayer, should be no surprise at all. Jesus and his disciples leave the city. They cross this in through this valley. And historians tell us that that stream that ran through that would have been flowing red from all the lambs that had been sacrificed for Passover. About 30 years after this point, they recorded almost a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered at one Passover. As Jesus crossed that stream and saw it red with the blood of those lambs, He knew tomorrow my blood will be flowing. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. By law, they couldn't go all the way out to Bethany, which was about two miles away, where they had been going every night. So they go out to this garden, this olive grove, just outside the city. And this is where Judas leads the officials to Jesus. This is how Judas betrays Christ. You see, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, but they didn't want a riot. They didn't want a mob scene. So they said, we need somebody who can take us to Jesus when he's outside the city, away from other people, so we can arrest him in private. That was the sin of Judas, leading the people to where he knew Jesus would be outside the city. Judas knew this was going to be a secluded location. So for 30 pieces of silver, he sold Jesus out. We see in this story the corruption of sin as the religious leaders have determined Jesus must die. Nothing short of the death of Jesus was going to suffice for them. What do we see in this story, in the arrest of Jesus, about him? Let me give you a few things this morning. Some of them won't surprise you. What do we see in Jesus? Number one, we see his courage. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. Beating crown of thorns, crucifixion, all of it. And what are we told? 
We're told Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, he went right to the spot where he would be arrested. I don't know about you, but that's the last place I would be. Right? Jesus went right to the spot where he knew they were going to come for him. Boy, had it been me, I'd have thrown the disciples at him. Who do you want? We want Jesus of, of Nazareth. Had that been me, I'd have looked at him and said, Oh, oh, you want me? He just left. I think he went that way. If you hurry, you might be able to catch him. But Jesus didn't hide. He went out to them and said, Who do you want? I'd have sent Peter out. Find out who they want. Tell them I'm not here. Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus hears that they're looking for him, he's, I'm him. Notice Jesus' faith in the providence of God over people and circumstances. God was in control. When it, in that last verse, Jesus asked the question, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father's hand has provided? He saw God at work in these events. Far from running away from it, Jesus courageously went forward. But we should not miss the obvious here. How well Jesus does at this moment of testing. Don't we see a connection between his praying before this? Jesus spent a long time in prayer before these events unfolded. Some serious time in prayer. The disciples kept falling asleep, remember? And one of the times when Jesus came back, he says, Couldn't you watch with me for at least an hour? And that was just one of the sessions that he was praying. He prayed for multiple hours. We pray for minutes sometimes. And we wonder why we lack the power and the courage that we need to stand for God. Jesus knew where that power came from. But what looks like a tragedy from one perspective, we see it's not a tragedy at all. It's a great victory. Yes, Jesus is killed, but it's by his death that our sins are forgiven. Jesus is such a good example here because he doesn't just roll over and say, well, nothing I can do about it. This is fate. Mm -mm. Jesus ran toward these events. He embraced this because this is not fate. This is the will of God. He went toward the will of God, even though it was going to cost him greatly. Jesus didn't shrink back from the will of God. John chapter 10, Jesus tells us, he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. Jesus courageously went forward. The second thing we see in this passage 
is the compassion of Jesus. They came and they said, we want Jesus. And Jesus' first thought was, I'm he, let these other guys go. You don't need them, let them go. And they fall back and they come back again. Jesus, who do you want? We want Jesus. And he said, well, then let them go. You don't need them. You want me. This is fascinating to me. Jesus is thinking about others knowing that they're going to kill him. Are you kidding me? Even at this point, Jesus cannot bring himself to focus on himself. He's already thinking of others or still thinking of others. Remember what we learned from our Philippians study? Philippians chapter 2. Each of us should look not only to our own interests, but the interests of others. Jesus is living this out. He was thinking about the disciples. Look at our lives. We're not facing problems like a beating and, and a crucifixion. And yet it seems almost impossible for us to stop and think about others and what they need. What a contrast between Jesus and us. Before Jesus is arrested, he's not just praying for himself, he's praying for others. John records this, a a large section of this prayer that Jesus prayed. He prayed for his disciples. He knew what was going to happen and how they were going to scatter. He prays for them, knowing they're going to come for him. And then in the middle of that prayer, did you know in John chapter, what is it, 16, 17, that Jesus prays for you? Did you know that? Jesus, in the midst of that prayer, he said, God, I pray for those people who come to faith through these disciples. Do you know who that is? That's us. We stand in that long line of people who have faith that spread from the disciples on out. Do you realize that the night before Jesus is crucified, he's praying for you? What a wonderful thought. Of Jesus' selflessness, his compassion, even as he's facing death. Could you do that? Could you think of others facing what Jesus was facing? Jesus shows us a level of selflessness that is not seen anywhere else. Third, In addition to Jesus' courage and his compassion, we also see Jesus' conviction. Jesus was convicted about two things. He believed this passionately, and that was that there are two worlds. There's a physical world, there's a physical realm, and there's also a spiritual realm, a spiritual arena. All the way back in chapter 3, remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. There's two worlds. There's two realms. There's more than just the here and now. And Jesus, when he's on trial, and he's asked, are you a king? He says, well, yeah, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom was of this world, my disciples 
would fight for me. Jesus had a conviction. There are two worlds. Two realms. The spiritual and the physical. Number four. We see Jesus has an absolute commitment to the will of God. Jesus was willing to pay the price for his commitment. For too many of us, commitment is simply a word without much meaning. Oh, I'm committed to this. But how does that commitment really play out? How does it really change our lives? You see, Jesus was willing to pay the price for his commitment. And that's what commitment means. Willing to pay the price. Jesus didn't just talk a good game. He lived it. He lived what he taught. And what we're told here is that Jesus is in this garden. In the other Gospels, we're told that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't use that word, but that's where we know Jesus is. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It was an olive grove, and that's where they would have crushed the olives to get the olive oil. Boy, do you see the picture there? As Jesus is going through this olive press. As life circumstances and the will of God come crushing down on him. And Jesus' commitment is to do the will of God. John 12, Jesus said, My soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I have come. You see, for Jesus, it wasn't optional for him to do the will of God. He had no choice in his mind. I've got to do this. That's why in that last verse he says, Shall I not drink it? This cup that God has given to me. Why would I run away from it now? Because Jesus doesn't have a higher priority in his life than God. God was not a high priority. God was the highest priority in Jesus' life. This cup that God had for him was the cup of God's wrath. Jesus didn't sip this cup. Jesus drank that cup to the bottom for us. And this is critical. Jesus didn't die for his sin. He died for our sin. In this story, we see Jesus does not have a religion of convenience. You know what that is? A religion of convenience is something that you do as long as it's convenient. As long as it doesn't cost you much. We joke in the church, and it's not funny, but we joke in the church that if it rains, attendance will be down. Really? Our commitment to Christ is such that a little bit of rain will keep us from going to church? Jesus stuck with it even when it was difficult. Jesus, as part of his message, said, you need to count the cost. And Jesus did. And he was willing to pay that price. What we see here is Jesus 
living out His teaching where He said the first and greatest commandment is that you love God above all else. The second greatest commandment is like the first, you love your neighbor as yourself. In this moment, we see Jesus living out the two greatest commandments, obedience to God and love for others. What's our takeaway? What do we get when we, when we see Jesus here? What do we learn from this? What's the challenge for us today as we see the commitment of Christ? Number one. We all need to raise the priority of God in our lives. All of us. None of us, myself included, has God as our absolute number one priority all the time. Each of us can do better. And when God becomes more of a priority for us, we will be more selfless. We will live more for others. Number one, we need to make God a higher priority in our life. Number two, each of us needs to realize that we are called to the crucified life. What we see here in Jesus is not a story just about him. It's a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, If any man comes after me, if he wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. We are called to live the crucified life ourselves. Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that we have been crucified with Christ, and yet we live, but the life we live belongs to God and not to ourselves. We need a higher commitment to God as a number one priority in our lives. And we need to live out this crucified life. Number three, we need to spend more time living in both worlds. God has called us to live in the physical world. How do we know that? Because you were born with a physical body. If God didn't want you to live in the physical world, he wouldn't have given you life. He wouldn't have given you a body to live in the physical world. But in the same way, if we are born again, if we've come to faith in Christ, if we have that new spiritual life, God wants us to live in that world too. You see, God did not give us spiritual life in Christ for us simply to ignore it and to live our lives with our eyes only on the physical world. What was the point of giving us spiritual life then? As believers in Christ, we must not allow ourselves to be so caught up in the here and now that we have no usefulness to the kingdom. You see, Jesus could see the hand of God in the circumstances that were leading to his death. And Jesus could go forward with confidence. And so can we. How many times do we find ourselves fighting against the circumstances in our lives, fighting against what's happening with the tools of this world? You see, Jesus was decisive. When he was 12 years old, he was in the temple. Remember, Mary and Joseph lost him. He wasn't lost. They didn't know where he was. And when they finally found him, you can see Mary come out with a little scolding finger. And he's like, what? 
You didn't know I would be in my dad's house. Jesus, even at 12, was living in the spiritual realm. Jesus was decisive. We sing a song where we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there's a key line in that song. It says, no turning back. Jesus decided he was going to surrender to the will of the Father. And he said, I'm not turning back. When Jesus was struggling with this in the garden, remember, he said, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass, take it away. But not my will, your will be done. Jesus was absolutely committed to the will of God because he was living in both worlds. And then Peter comes along. you got to love Peter, man. Peter pulls out this sword. What we're told is it was probably a short dagger. And he whacks off a guy's ear. I'm telling you, nobody wants that. Right? Because have you ever gone to a funeral? What did he die? Well, his ear got cut off. What would you think, Peter? You're going to give him a mortal ear wound? It's a beautiful picture of, of a futile attempt to stop what God is doing here. And Jesus just says, put that away. That's not what we're about. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? Put it away. This is Jesus commanding us to put away our foolish attempts to stop the will of God. To live out in the physical world what we want rather than submitting to what God wants in the spiritual world. Jesus chose to fight with prayer what Peter was trying to do pretty pathetically with the sword. Jesus didn't reach into the physical realm to try to stop what God wanted to do. In Matthew, in this story, when Peter drew the sword, Jesus told him to put it away and said, Dude, don't you realize I could call my father and like that we could have all kinds of angels here to get me out. If I wanted to get out, I could. And buddy, I don't need you and your sword and your bad aim to get it done. Peter's action was a misguided effort to help Jesus. But as we look at this story and what we see in Jesus, we need to fundamentally rethink life. How we look at it. I want you to understand, I'm not talking about giving God a bigger slice of pie of your life. Are you with me? I'm not saying whatever slice of pie you give to God, give God a little bit bigger piece. That's the way we often think. Okay, I go to church a little bit, maybe I should do a little bit more for God. It's not what I'm talking about. What we need is a better grasp of living in these two worlds all the time. 
Not where we go back and forth between the physical material world and the spiritual world. But where we see both of these worlds as overlapping all the time. See, for too many of us, we give God a little bit of time. We, we creep over into the spiritual realm. We give God a little bit, and then we climb back into the physical material world and live there. Ignoring the spiritual reality, though, doesn't eliminate it. Ignoring the spiritual side of life doesn't eliminate the spiritual side of life. It's still there. Ignoring God doesn't make God go away. God is still there. This is key. Jesus' priority was to live in the spiritual realm. Just as in chapter 4 when Jesus comes to the well and the Samaritan woman comes out to him. Jesus is tired. Jesus is thirsty. Jesus could have said, you know what, leave me alone, I'm tired. But Jesus has a spiritual encounter with this woman because he said, I'm not going to let my physical needs overwhelm my opportunity to do spiritual. He didn't focus so much on the physical that he couldn't see that this woman had a greater need than his need for a cup of water. Because honestly, as thirsty as he was, he wasn't going to die of thirst. She was going to die and go to hell. Jesus saw how the spiritual overlaps the physical. We have to stop and force ourselves to see the spiritual world and to put the physical on hold once in a while. You see, we normally put the spiritual on hold while we focus on the material world. For those of you who stop and pray before you eat, this is what I'm talking about. When you stop and pray before you're eating, the physical's right there, but you push it to the side and you said, for a moment, I need to acknowledge God and his gifts in providing this food. That's what we need to do more of. Find ways to bring that spiritual into the physical material world. Let me give you a few examples of how we can do this. How we can live out the spiritual while we're living in the physical. How about if we put away the sword of gossip and slander and pick up the sword of prayer? That's a spiritual weapon that we can use in the physical material world. Now let's get ugly. How about if we get off Facebook? How about if we turn off the television and pick up our Bibles? That is where we allow the spiritual to come in and to work while we're in the physical. How about if we skip going out to eat one night and make some grilled cheese sandwiches and take the money that we save 
and give it to God. Are you with me? That's how we take the spiritual and impose it on the material and say, this is my priority. This means we have to rethink how we talk too. Gone are the days where we stay dishonestly. I don't have time to do this for God. What we should say is we should honestly say, hold ourselves accountable. Oh, I had the time to do it. I just chose to do something that was less important. You see, what areas of your physical life have you been focusing on so much that you've been pushing the spiritual out? Do you understand today? Jesus didn't have to do what he did. It was a choice. Jesus chose to make the spiritual reality more important than the physical reality. They're both true. They're both real. He says, but I want to make this one more important. Jesus didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. Shall I not drink it? Expects the answer, yes, you shall. Because that's what everything has been moving toward. Jesus did not go to the cross to die for us so we could treat God as optional. Did you hear me? Jesus made a choice to put God first so that we could choose to do the same thing. And we insult Jesus by saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for this wonderful gift of life. Now get out of my way, i got other things to do. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we must force ourselves to move from the physical over to the spiritual, and to bring the spiritual into the physical. Otherwise, it won't get done. And folks, that's what you did this morning. You got up this morning and you had 16 other things that you could have done. But you chose to put God first and come to church. Good for you. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. Good for you. You could have been someplace else. But to think that now that it's Time for church to be over. We can punch out and get back to the world. No. You started off your week right. Now let's keep it going. You put God first for this time. Then let's keep it going. All week long. Finding ways to intersect the spiritual and the physical. You see somebody with a need, then you stop and you minister to them. You see somebody that's hurting, you stop and you encourage them. That's bringing the spiritual that's there, but you're bringing it to bear in the physical. Let's pray.